You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning, Covenant Hope Church. If you haven't already, grab a Bible, turn to the book of Genesis. It is the first book in the Bible. We're going to continue our series God's story of creation to restoration. If you're a guest today, we normally walk through books of the Bible because we really believe the Bible has something to say. We call this expositional preaching because the Bible has something to say. God has something to say, and we want to submit our lives to God's word. And if you're not a follower of Jesus today, this is a safe place for you to listen, to hear what God has done and is doing through his people, both in the past and today. So, with the black, uh, hard-covered Bibles. You can turn to page 9, and we'll begin. You think of the name Billy Graham. Images, memories of great revivals arise. I can remember growing up and watching YouTube videos of him preaching, and thousands and thousands of people, it seems, streaming down to profess faith in Jesus Christ. He was viewed as a true man of God, and He was admired, he was revered for this faith, for the zeal that he poured out in pulpits across New York City, nations overseas. But what if a list of Billy Graham's sins in thought, word, and deed surfaced publicly? If you could read into his nastiest thought, his insecurities, you would observe that the man was not perfect, and that he was not that holy in and of himself. You would be able to see and step back his doubts, his wounds, his sinful desires, and hopefully you would quickly grasp that reality that Billy Graham is not God, but that God worked his plan of salvation through Billy's faithfulness despite his sins, his shortcomings. The Israelites to whom Moses is writing in this passage, held Abram in this high regard as a man of God, as a man of faith. He was the father of their faith, the heir of these promises, of these covenants. He led his family out of Egypt as a foreshadow of Israel's exodus with Moses, and he encountered the presence of the Lord multiple times. But this text is ultimately not about Abram's loyalty to the Lord. No mountains are moved by Abram's faith today. It's about his lack of faith, we will see. In fact, Abram is actually humiliated in this scripture. We see here that driven by fear, Abram threatened God's promise by giving up his wife to Pharaoh. But the Lord rescued them in his faithfulness. The text today is about God, how he relates to his people through his promises. We'll see our Heavenly Father's faithfulness to his people despite their failures and sins. And today, brothers and sisters, we can know that no matter the past sin or failure, a Christian's life can be restored through God's promise of salvation in Jesus. In this text, God sends Abram, very young in the faith, into a situation that would reveal his utter need for the Lord and his divine intervention. So God sends Abram a major difficulty to accomplish this in his heart. So look with me, verse 10, as we see the first scene in this story, the famine. There was a famine in the land, 
So Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. Notice that the difficulty Abram faces is immediate. There was a famine in the land, and this famine was no small thing. If you understand the ancient Near East culture, Abram lived in an agricultural society. No rain means no survival, which means that Abram must get on up out of there, pack his bags, pick up his family's things, and go. He has to keep his wife and his family alive. This is his responsibility. But if you look back just a few verses that Ryan preached last week, the Lord has just promised Abram this land and a future to build his nation there. But like a thief in the night, a famine falls on Canaan where God said Abram would live. Canaan is now uninhabitable. This is where Abram is promised by the Lord that he will bless all the families of the earth. Yet God's promises are often proved through unexpected trials. I remember very clearly driving home in my dad's white Lincoln town car and I was getting ready. I had just had practice in the morning, and I remember very vividly thinking about the season that I was in. I mean, junior year is when the, the, the scouts and the prospects are starting to look at you to see if you are going to be good enough to be recruited by the teams. And I just remember pulling up to my mom and dad's house. I remember getting out of the car. I walked to the front door, and I enter. And I remember my sister was away at college, but my brother was in the room, in the living room. And so were my mom and my dad. But I do remember a wave of heaviness hitting us. Something just was off. I remember my dad and mom asked us to to sit at the dinner table. And I knew something was off because I began to see my mother tearing up. And my dad said, Andrew will. As you know, mom had her doctor's appointment uh, recently. And the doctors have said that she has breast cancer. Famine. Famine. But God was still sitting there with us in that immediate difficulty. Still faithful, still loving, still wiser than me, still in control. And we didn't know what was going to happen after that. You, you have these thoughts, what's going to happen with, with my mom? Will she see me get married? Will she see me graduate college? Will, we have, will our family forever be changed? But if there's any person in my life, it's my mother and my father who have demonstrated a reliance on the Lord's promises. My mom's in the audience today, and you see that the Lord brought her through that. But brothers and sisters, have you ever been caught off guard like that? As if God has given you a great gift. It's secure, it's sturdy. Maybe it's your relationship with a parent, your mom, your dad, your job, this consistent flow of income. And suddenly, bam, the thing is threatened to be taken away, or it is. Abram understood that fear. Maybe God has sent a difficulty into your life, a trial, a family relationship that's fractured, a medical diagnosis that's purely bad news, lack of profit opportunities at work, a bout of depression, obsessive thoughts that drive you to question your identity in Jesus Christ, a death in the family. Rest in the fact today, brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ is with you in this trial. Jesus' half-brother James tells us, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, small trials, big trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The Lord will send difficulties into our lives to expose our need to strengthen our confidence in Christ and to acquaint us 
with Christ's sufferings, to be united to Christ, to share in what Christ experienced, his sufferings. And this is how we see his love for us in greater and greater degrees. But here in this trial, Abram's fear would show up. The first scene was the famine. Now the second scene displays Abram's fear. Look at verse 11 with me. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, look, I I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but let you live. Please say that you're my sister, so it will go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. Abram is overthinking about the negative as he's emigrating into a foreign territory. Being killed is on his mind, and as an immigrant, he really could be exploited. So think with me. Abram is a prince among his people, a shepherd king with a gorgeous wife. And so when Egypt's rulers see Prince Abram's posse strolling up into Egypt, they could be thinking, they could see it as an affront to their power. Abram is probably assuming that Egypt's leaders would take his arrival as a threat to their national security. They would kill him, steal his wife, enslave his clan. Abram also acknowledges his wife's beauty and fears that she will be sought after by the Egyptian women, uh, the Egyptian men. Now, Sarai is 65 years old here. She has not had a son. We remember she can't have children in the, la- in the last text that we heard preached. But to the Egyptians, she is this remarkably beautiful woman. In Abram's day as well, there was this uh, tendency for ancient cultures to glorify this head mother figure of a nation. So that could be also what's happening here as well. Abram does, though, assume the worst about his future, even with God's promise to protect him. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Often, brothers and sisters, we do the same. We imagine the worst possible situation. Fighting with God for control in our relationships, our circumstances, looking for fixes outside of God and letting our pride, letting our anxiety possess us in our finances, school and sports performances, dating life, all of it. We believe the lie that we can fix our situation in our own power or that God really won't act for our good. But let's be sure, brothers and sisters, to encourage one another in CHC when we see our brothers and sisters in these moments. I constantly need the text from Nate. I constantly need the text from Cody Hassel, from Tim, from Aaron, encouraging me when I'm able to confess sin, to confess a struggle. I need encouragement, and I'm always talking about how Caleb, the Christian radio music station, how it can be pretty corny sometimes, but the jingle they have is the positive, encouraging Caleb. But we really need this. The Bible says, exhort one another daily. As long as it is called today, encourage one another. We often overthink. We often forget the promises of the Lord. But there are two major sins here that Abram is committing in verse 12 through 13, if you'll look. He tells a half-truth as the whole truth to deceive the Egyptians And he sacrifices his dearly beloved wife on the altar of self-preservation. Abram tells Sarai to simply claim to be his sister to throw the Egyptians off. Let me run that back. Abram tells his wife to claim to be his sister to throw the Egyptians off. Now, I'm in premarital counseling with Cody and Ashley right now. They're walking me and Hunter through that. 
and I'm extremely thankful that they have not used this as advice, you know, when you face counsel and conflict in life, you know, Andrew and Hunter, I just hope that, you know, when you hit conflict and trial, I want you to first pray, and I want you to seek counsel, and if things get really bad, just claim to be siblings, and everything else is going to be okay. It's going to be okay after that. It's not the best option. Even in today's culture, this is like two, four thousand years ago or so. It's not the best option. But this was actually partially true for Abram. The Bible says Sarai is Abram's half-sister. They share the same father, a different mother, but this was not the full truth. And the intent behind this is really deception toward the Egyptians, and this was risky. If she's just Abram's sister, that would pose Sarai as available in the Egyptian relationship market. Abram would merely be seen as a brother, so he wouldn't be targeted by an Egyptian hitman as her husband who wanted to take her. But in this time as well, a brother could possibly, he had a small chance of influencing who could marry his sister, so maybe he was going to take that risk. But that's just it. She is his wife in the eyes of God. Abram shows himself a chicken, a coward. Abram was promised protection from the Lord, but is willing to jeopardize the most important relationship in his life to keep himself from this danger, ultimately. And we see Abram fears Egypt's power more than the Lord's, but even a mighty Pharaoh could not stop God's purposes. And we praise God for that. Scene one was the famine. Scene two displayed Abram's fear. And now, scene three, the arrival of the Pharaoh. Look at verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her, praised her to Pharaoh. So the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. He treated Abram well because of her. And Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves and camels. Now, in this context, Pharaoh's officials here are no more than Pharaoh's pimps. In this culture, these men are agents of Pharaoh's sex slavery trade. This is human trafficking going on. And it was normal back then. It's more normal today in many parts of our country in this world. But like Adam and Eve with the forbidden fruit, the Egyptians see and want to take. These officials clearly do not find true beauty in Sarai's virtue, modesty, her devotion to the Lord, but they find it in her outward appearance and her status. A reminder to my sisters in Christ today in the room, a woman's physical beauty can get her into trouble. To be more focused on the outward beauty of the body more than the, than the inward beauty of the heart is missing everything. That doesn't mean that you don't take care of yourself or care about how you look, but remember that your true beauty lies in the gospel that says that you are treasured and cherished by our Heavenly Father because of what Christ has done by shedding his blood. The Apostle Peter's words to wives should be accepted and applied. He says, don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourself instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. And to the brothers in the room, we should not miss this view of beauty that Peter gives us. 
We will be tempted to value outward beauty first, but we cannot miss that which is so precious to the Lord. The Egyptian men obviously miss this view of beauty completely, and what they value is evident. So word about Sarai gets around. Look at verse 15. Sarai here is in danger of having her moral purity violated as she's taken into Pharaoh's harem. Now, to be brought to a harem house in ancient times meant preparation for Pharaoh's bedroom. And at this moment, Abram is powerless to bring about any change, to bring any help to his wife, because he chose, as we often do, to throw away his responsibility by avoiding it altogether. Abram is treated well in this matter, though. Interesting. He receives many earthly goods as gifts from Pharaoh for providing him yet another foreign wife. But be warned, brothers and sisters, that receiving good things in this life does not always mean favor and blessing from God, especially when they're acquired through sinful methods. Abram received gifts, but he neglected the greatest goods, his God and his wife. But our Heavenly Father wouldn't neglect his promise. The first scene was the famine. The second scene displayed Abram's fear. The third scene introduced the Pharaoh. And the fourth and final scene will reveal the Father's faithfulness. Though Abram's sin and fear are obvious in this text, We see the father's faithfulness shining very brightly. Abram did not hold fast to his human wife. And he led her into a place where sin could have its way with her. But the Lord, the faithful husband of his people, held fast to them despite their sins. Read with me in verse 17. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues. Because of Abram's wife, Sarai. Here is the peak of this passage, brothers and sisters. Hone in here. This is the first time that the Lord is mentioned in this passage. When the promise of Abram's future descendants is at the most risk, the Lord intervenes. Sarai is the instrument that God will use to bring them children of his promise. So the Lord steps in to keep his word to Abram. As he says in a few verses prior, Genesis 12, verse 2, Abram, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Though Pharaoh was unaware of, of, of Abram's to set the plot, the Lord drops the judgment hammer on his household to save Abram and his wife. If Abram's wife was threatened, so was the lineage of King David. So was the lineage then of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. But God steps in to override the sins and errors of his people, to bring about his wise and saving purposes for the world and our lives as his children. Brothers and sisters, take comfort in that today. Think to the worst sin that you have ever committed. Gossip sexual immorality, lying to someone to make yourself seem more put together than you really are. No matter the sin and failure in your life, 
The word of God says that he is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. He is able. Indeed, Abram stumbled here, and he stumbled really bad. He threatened the plan of divine redemption. But the Lord brought a judgment on Pharaoh to deliver his wife. This plague awakened Pharaoh, and he's clearly shocked to find that Sarai belongs to Abram. And in these days, unbelievers thought that adultery, even unbelievers thought this was worthy of the death penalty. Even though we're not given the details on whether Sarai and Pharaoh were intimate or not, I don't think they were based on Pharaoh's response. And I believe that God intervened at just the right time. Overall, Pharaoh's response is actually surprisingly merciful. In verse 18, we read, So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her as my wife. Now here is your wife. Take her and go. The irony in this verse is that the unbeliever is rebuking the chosen man of God. And brothers and sisters, if we profess the name of Jesus Christ in this world, we can expect the world to make us aware of our sins. Even the prophet Jonah was caught out in his sin by an unbelieving crew member when he was running away from God. When we fail to be the light of the world, brothers and sisters, the darkness will absolutely make that clear to us, often as a needed rebuke. But amidst the darkness of Abram's sin, the pagan Pharaoh treated Abram a lot better than Abram had imagined at first. Pharaoh asks Abram, what have you done to me? And it is like this time, I've heard these words before, it's like the time in high school when uh, I got the Swiss cake rolls and I took them into my room solo and I devoured them and then my mother probably sees it. She busts into the room and uh, sees this mountain of Swiss cake roll wrappers and then she actually really her grocery budget probably manifests and cries out, what have you done to me? This is, <laughs> but this is a lot weightier than me eating Swiss cake rolls without asking mama. Um, in all sincerity, Abram falls hard. Abram, in this text, he doesn't give any response to Pharaoh in this text. It actually implies his humiliation. There is no response. When God and we, when we stand before God on that last day, who can stand? Who of you can stand in your failure, in your sin? None of us. But we know the one who can Look at verse 20. Look how God responds. Look what God does to sure up and restore this situation. Verse 20. Then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him, Abram, and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. So Pharaoh's men, they escort Abram to their border. They're done with these plagues. And they see to it that he's kicked out. Just like the Lord sending Adam and Eve. There's the same image here of Adam and Eve getting pushed out of the Garden of Eden. But you see, the Lord's mercy is still present, brothers and sisters. Not only did the Lord deliver Sarai and Abram from what could have really been a disaster, but look, the Lord also restores a man back to his wife. It reads, and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. 
This is the work of our Heavenly Father. A father who sees his people's sins, sees their failures, sees their self-interest, and yet he chooses to bring restoration out of it. The Lord delights in restoring broken people to himself and to each other. But he does this through the power, not of our own might, but of the gospel. Unlike Abram, the Lord Jesus Christ holds fast to his bride. And who is this bride? Who is, as Revelation says, the wife of the Lamb? It is you, brothers and sisters. Faithfully and despite all of our sin, all of our wrong, he lives, Jesus, a perfectly good life in thought, word, and deed. He takes responsibility for us by taking our sins upon himself at the cross. The new covenant marries us to Jesus And what's ours, specifically our sin, he takes responsibility for. And what's his, specifically his righteousness, is bestowed and put upon us as a free gift. So when the father sees us, he sees the reputation of Jesus. As a husband to his wife, we are given the name of Jesus. And he sees that name, and that name only, especially on that last day. The Lord Jesus willingly willingly takes responsibility for our wrongs and makes you and I righteous at the cross. So brothers and sisters, this is a passage where we can be both warned and encouraged by Abram and his story. His fear, his unbelief, and God's word threaten God's promise and his most important relationship, namely his marriage and his wife. And Abram's faith is really set on himself and his abilities here. But God calls you and I today to trust in a greater promise. And it goes beyond just inheriting a land. It goes beyond becoming a great nation. God promises this to you today. He promises forgiveness of sins, restored relationship with him, and eternal life in the new heavens and new earth where all relationships will be restored if and when We put our full confidence in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. This is what saves us. And the cross of Christ is where God intervenes for us like he intervenes to save Abram. So let these gifts of God's kindness, brothers and sisters, lead us to a deeper repentance. His kindness. You see his mercy towards you. and that Because no matter the sin or failure in a Christian's life, no matter what you've done, the wrong. You can be restored through God's promise of salvation in Jesus Christ. So as believers, when tempted to take matters into your own hands in unforeseen circumstances, broken relationships, fractured relationships, look to God's wisdom in the scripture before acting in your own will. You see Abram consulting nobody. Seek a brother and sister. Seek insight from them. Whenever you're facing a famine in your life, so to speak, cling to the bread of life, which is Christ. Let him be your daily bread. Let his word wash over you to counsel you so that you're constantly reminded of his faithfulness to you, his love to you, his promises to you, how he will always act toward you, no matter how you feel. And I would encourage you sincerely, brothers and sisters, explore your story. Explore your own story. This week, 
Who or what are you tempted to fear more than God? Where do you seek control to control people, circumstances? Where do you seek to use your own power? And I would encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to expose this in your heart so that then you can walk in his healing and his grace. Explore your story and how it comes to pass in relation to the gospel. And never forget at the end of the day that though Abram here was willing to give up the life of his wife to save himself, Christ gave up himself to bring life to his bride, the church. You, brothers and sisters, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do just give thanks to you. We give thanks that we have an opportunity, Lord, to know that though we fail to hold fast to you, we fail to cling to you, to obey you, to be responsive to your commands and obedience, Lord. You are faithful to us. Lord, you cast our sins behind yourself, Lord. You cleanse us through the blood of Jesus and you promise us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Lord, you promise to sanctify us. You promise that you will bring us into your presence. You will do it. And you will use trial, famine, suffering to do it, Lord. And we can know that through the sufferings of Christ, God, that we share in that. And we're called to share in that. And we should rejoice because there is a weight of glory awaiting us. So God, let this be the reminder as we're relating to one another this week. Lord, expose our fear. Cause us to seek our own story, to, to see where we have failed, but Lord, to see where you're ready to restore and to give grace. Lord, this is your love for us. How much more you've given Jesus as your one and only son. How much more will you give us all things in Christ? Lord, we give thanks, and I thank you for this family who allows me to preach, Lord. I need them, and I have needed them, Lord, in my sin and my failure, and I'm thankful that you bless me with these people. Lord, thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.